This morning's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 20 to 25. And the title for this morning's message is Be Mature in Your Thinking. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 20 to 25. And the Word of God says this to us this morning. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would sharpen our minds, Lord. We pray that you would Increase our attentiveness to your word and to the leading and instruction by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that through your word, as we walk through this portion of scripture this morning, we pray that you would, that you would speak to our hearts and to our souls. We pray that you would use your word to mature our thinking, Lord God. That you would enable us as as individuals and corporately as a church to think biblically, Father. To not be driven by our emotions. To not be driven by mere opinions. To not be influenced by the opinions of the world. But, Father, that we would be influenced and driven by your word. So we do pray, Lord God, that you would apply your word to our lives and to this church. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I was, uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who shared a story with the class that, that I had never uh, forgotten. Uh, and uh, partly because it's a story that I experienced uh, to a similar degree uh, later on in life, later on in ministry. And, uh, well, he shared with the class that he had been asked by a church to be a guest preacher at uh, their morning worship service, and he did not at the time particularly remember what he had preached on at that morning service, but he does remember that after the sermon... A very sincere uh, woman came to him afterward and said to him, you know, I really enjoyed 
listening to your message, and I enjoyed you know, hearing you. You were uh, wonderful to listen to, but I don't need theology. All I need is Jesus Christ. Now, we all know what she meant by that, or I think, I think I hope we know what she meant by that, but what the woman failed to realize is that her statement in and of itself was a theological statement because Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is Jesus the Christ, and Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And so by simply saying, all I need is Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, she was making a theological claim and a theological assertion about the historical person and work of the man named Jesus. She was saying something theological about him. She was making a claim about his identity and about who he was and what he came to do. And as I said a few moments ago, I had a, ser- a similar experience with that at a previous church I ministered to where a first-time visitor, a first and only-time visitor, uh, came to the church and after the service uh, complimented me on the eloquence of my message and how much he thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to me and thought I was a gifted speaker. But then he said, you know, as much as I enjoyed listening to your message, I don't think that we really need doctrine. I'm not a fan of churches teaching doctrine. I think that all we need is the Bible. What this gentleman failed to realize is that the word doctrine simply means something that is taught and believed and adhered to. That's all the word doctrine means. Thus, when we teach the gospel, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone else, we are actually teaching the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. When we teach about the relationship within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. When we teach that the Bible is all we need, that the Bible is sufficient for all of our deepest and truest spiritual needs, we are teaching the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. What these people have in common is that they both viewed themselves as being spiritually and theologically mature. And they were genuinely trying to be helpful. All the while not realizing that their own aversion to the deep theological truths of Scripture was indicative of their own spiritual immaturity. They're not alone. They're not alone. In far too many evangelical churches, when pastors bring up words like justification or propitiation, 
Or when they talk about topics like the sovereignty of God or the providence of God, they are often met with blank stares. Because these are not just fancy words and phrases. These are important biblical truths that the church has held to historically for nearly 2,000 years. That every Christian should know and understand and believe. These things matter if we want to know God rightly. The problem is that there are too many who think that words don't matter. What matters is loving Christ and knowing Christ and becoming more like Christ. That's what matters. That's what we ought to emphasize in churches. Not theology, not doctrine, not words and words and more words. But far too many Christians don't realize that you cannot love Christ rightly. You cannot know Christ fully and you cannot become more like Christ apart from growing in your knowledge of God's Word. Apart from growing in your understanding of theology. Because the word theology simply means the study of God. And isn't that what we should be doing? Isn't that what we should spend our life doing? In other words, theological knowledge and spiritual maturity are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. Too many Christians don't get this. And neither did the church in Corinth. And that's what led to most of their problems. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. You see, this was the problem that they had in Corinth. They thought that they were mature. They thought they had it all together. They thought they were a great church. Look at all of the gifts that we have, all of the gifts that we're using in the church. We are so knowledgeable, but they were the complete opposite of spiritual maturity, and it showed. It showed. Paul has been driving this point home from the very beginning of the letter. Recall what he wrote way back in chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3, Paul says this. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Ouch. 
Ouch! Talk about a strong rebuke. Their behavior, Paul is saying, is evidence of their spiritual immaturity. Regardless of what they know or what they think they know. And the result is that they are damaging the church and they are damaging each other. They are driving away unbelievers rather than reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and God is not being glorified in their church. And so he begins the section that we are in this morning by telling them that he wants them to not be children in their thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. But then Paul quickly corrects himself because he does want them to be children. He wants them to be infants in one way. He says he wants them to be infants with regards to evil, but in their thinking, he wants them to be mature. The trouble is that the church in Corinth is not much different than the church today, the modern church today in the United States and probably around the world, and not much different than many Christians today. We have way too much knowledge and experience regarding the evil that this world has to offer. But when it comes to the Word of God, many are neonates. This is because we spend far more time looking at social media than we do looking at God's Word. We spend far too much time searching for a new show or movie to watch than we do searching through Scripture. We spend far more time sitting in our recliner watching television than we do on our knees in prayer. Yes, when it comes to the evil in this world, too many Christians have an enormous amount of experience and knowledge and yet, when it comes to the Word of God, our infants. I was listening to a contemporary Christian song recently on, I want to say the radio, but it's really not the radio anymore, is it? On the internet, where some of the words went like this, I've done things I wish I hadn't done. I've seen things I wish I hadn't seen. Just the thought of your amazing grace, and I cried, Jesus, forgive me. You know, those two first two lines are powerful, and they really impacted me. I've done things I wish I hadn't done, and I've seen things I wish I hadn't seen. For too many of us, when it comes to the evil that this world has to offer, we are far from being infants and this is what causes many, many of the problems in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, and in our church. Because we are infants when it comes to the Word of God. And Paul is telling the church in Corinth that this has to change. This needs to change if they are ever going to improve as a church. And so the first thing that Paul 
in verse 20 does is that he explains to them why he is making such a big deal out of this. You know, Paul has just spent three entire chapters talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Chapters 12, chapters 13, and chapters 14. Three whole chapters on the gifts of the Spirit. And then he spends nearly one entire chapter just on the gifts of tongues and prophecy and how prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues. So the question that Paul realizes that they may be wondering is why is he berating this point? Why has Paul spent so much time on this point? Because he does not want them to be children in their thinking. He wants them to be innocent regarding evil, but he wants them to be spiritually mature in their thinking, particularly regarding the gifts. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to offer four more points in our text. First, he will offer the scriptural basis for his argument, which is what he's about to do. Then he will explain the theological purpose for uninterpreted tongues from an Old Testament perspective. He will then explain the effects of uninterpreted tongues. And then finally, he'll conclude by explaining the effects of interpreted tongues. So if you're taking notes, there's your outline. So first, what is the theological basis for his argument? Look at verse 21 of our text. In verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So Paul interestingly enough, quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. It's a, it's a loose quote. It's not word for word. But I think it's worth noting, first of all, that notice that he says, in the law, it says, and then he quotes from Isaiah. I just want to briefly point out that it's worth noting that in the mind of of many of the New Testament writers, certainly in the mind of Paul, the reference to the law is not always a reference to the Mosaic law. And here's a classic example. He says, in the law, and yet he cites from Isaiah. So I do think that this is one of many good examples in the New Testament that in the mind of the first century devout Jew, in the mind of the apostles, in the mind of Paul... All of the Old Testament was the law of God. There wasn't this neatly divided uh, package of the Mosaic law and the, the ceremonial law and the judicial law. Anything that God commands is a moral law. We are bound by all of it regardless of where it may be written. But it is interesting, as I said, that Paul cites from Isaiah 28... Because the context of Isaiah chapter 28 is that God is condemning the northern tribe of Israel for all of their disobedience and their rebelliousness 
and their unwillingness to simply trust in God and to simply worship God alone and to not put their trust and confidence in foreign alliances. And so God tells them that he's going to send them a sign. And that sign is going to be by foreign invaders, people who will speak a foreign language that they do not understand, and this will take place in 722 B.C., with the invasion of the Assyrians into the northern part of Israel. And many of the, those living in the northern part of Israel will be carried away captive into Assyria. They will be driven out of the promised land, driven out of the covenant community, if you will, by people who are speaking a foreign tongue. And so essentially what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is, look, tongues or speaking in a foreign tongue was given as a sign in the Old Testament. It was given as a sign not for the believing people of Israel, not for the faithful, but rather for the unbelieving people of Israel, those who would not believe, and it was a sign of God's judgment upon the unbelieving people of Israel that God used to drive the unbelievers from the promised land. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 22. Notice he says, Thus, in light of Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, Thus, or therefore, for this reason, tongues are a sign not for believers. Not for the faithful, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And that just makes sense. You see, Paul is still thinking in terms of the Old Testament. He is thinking in terms of the fact that in the Old Testament... Prophecy in the Old Testament was spoken by the prophets and primarily to the people of God to give them guidance and instruction and to inform them of God's will and God's desire for their life, for their encouragement, for their edification, for their building up. People who spoke a foreign language, i.e., the Assyrians, in 722, and then the Babylonians in 586, followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Romans, were a sign of God's judgment upon an unbelieving people, upon an unfaithful people, many of whom would be driven from the covenant community and driven out of the nation of Israel. Thus, prophecy is intended for believers to encourage and to guide them while tongues is intended for unbelievers to condemn them and to drive them away. So then, what will be the effects of uninterpreted tongues being spoken in the church? Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, 
Will they not say that you are out of your minds? They're going to think something is wrong with you. You're not normal. You're not in your right state of mind. And in fact, this is exactly what happened the first time we see tongues in the New Testament in Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. They're all speaking in tongues. And those who are standing around listening to them who don't understand what they're saying say what? They're drunk. They've had too much wine. So they're just babbling. Nobody knows what they're saying. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, this is what is going to happen if you all come together and you all begin speaking in tongues in a foreign language. Visitors are going to come in and they're going to think they're out of their mind. Or maybe they're drunk. A little too much wine with the Lord's Supper that they like to do every Sunday morning. They're not making any sense. And that simply is not going to benefit anyone, right? The saints are not going to be benefited because they have no idea what is being said. If there's no interpreter, unbelievers aren't going to be benefited because they're just going to think you're crazy or you're drunk or there's something wrong with you. And at the end of the day, God is not glorified. God is not honored. The saints are not edified. Unbelievers are driven away. They're repulsed by what is happening. It doesn't make any sense. And God is not honored. So then what will be the effects of interpreted tongues? Verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Remember that tongues, when interpreted, is a form of prophecy. It functions in the way prophecy does. It has the same effect that prophecy does. The saints are edified, right? They are built up. They are encouraged. In fact, fact, Paul says as much back in verse 5 of this very chapter. There he says, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So they both have the effect of building up the church. Prophecy builds up the church and tongues can build up the church if someone interprets. Then it functions a lot like prophecy. It encourages, it edifies, it builds up the church. But now Paul adds, it also has the benefit of piercing the conscience of unbelievers and driving them toward Christ. That is, for those who understand what is being said. If they understand what is being said, it will convict them and drive them toward God, not away from God. And again, it's interesting that this is also what we saw happening at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
Yes, there were some who had no idea what was being said when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and everybody began to speak in tongues. There were some who said, well, they must be drunk. No idea what is being said. But there were some who heard the gospel being proclaimed in their own native language. Remember, Pentecost was such an important festival that Jews would travel from all over the Mediterranean world and they would go to Jerusalem. They didn't all speak Hebrew. They didn't all speak Aramaic. Some of them who traveled from Rome only spoke Latin. And so there were some who heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And what was their response? Acts chapter 2 verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then a little later in that same chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's amazing. 3,000 souls. Paul is saying the exact same thing to the church in Corinth in verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, if all speak in a language that is intelligible, speak in tongues and someone interprets, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, that is, by all that is spoken, not by all the people. He is convicted by all that is spoken. He is called to account by all, that is, by all that is spoken, by all that he is hearing. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And that's the point. That's the goal that Paul wants them to get. Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand what he is trying to get them to take hold of is that they need to strive to be theologically and spiritually mature in their thinking and to know that the purpose of church, the purpose of gathering on the Lord's Day is not to impress people. It's not to impress each other and it is certainly not to do whatever we want in church. Whatever floats your boat. The purpose of coming together in corporate worship is to glorify God. By edifying the saints and convicting the lost who enter in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't do that if you're speaking in a language that no one understands. In other words, all of the troubles and the problems that they were having in the church in Corinth comes down to this. They simply did not know their Bibles. They didn't know their Bibles. We see the spiritually immature 
don't ever know that they are spiritually immature, right? I mean, no one ever says that. No one ever admits that. You'll never hear a Christian say, oh, you know what I struggle with? I struggle with spiritual immaturity. I'm a spiritually immature Christian, right? I've never heard a Christian say that. Now, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, I've heard Christians say, you know, I really could do better in terms of my spiritual maturity. I could be more spiritually mature. I could be stronger in my faith, but I'm not spiritually immature. I mean, that person over there, that person is spiritually mature, right? But they don't know it. But I'm not spiritually immature. See, Paul's point to the church is that if they had studied their Bibles, that's really, I think, the point that he's making in this text. If they had studied their Bibles, if they had studied their Old Testament, which they had, as Paul did, they would have known that tongues is a sign for unbelievers. It is a sign for unbelievers, for those who refuse to believe in order to drive them away from the covenant community. And in the church, we should not want to drive people away. We should want them to hear the word of God, be convicted by the word of God, and be driven to the cross of Christ for grace and mercy Forgiveness and love. This was Paul's concern and prayer for the church in Corinth. And it's a prayer that I have for this church that we would not be children in our thinking. That we would be infants in regards to evil, but that we would be mature in our thinking. That we would pour ourselves into God's word. That we would grow stronger in our knowledge of God and in the things of God so that it would impact our lives and therefore impact the church. So that when we come together on the Lord's Day, the saints would be edified and encouraged and built up. And when unbelievers enter into our church, they would hear the word of God being faithfully proclaimed either from the pulpit or in conversation and they would be convicted and cut to the heart and driven to the cross of Christ for grace and mercy. Let's not make the mistake that the church in Corinth made because they simply did not know their Bibles. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a greater hunger for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater desire to know you, Lord God. To not be content with where we are in our sanctification. 
but that every day we would have a greater desire and a greater zeal to be just a little more like Christ, to know just a little more about Christ and about you and the Holy Spirit and all that you are doing in our lives and in redemptive history. We pray, Lord God, that you would take away our desire for the things of this world, the comforts of this world, the pleasures of this world. And we pray that you would increase our desire to find our pleasure and our joy and our delight truly in studying your word and in spending time in prayer and in filling our minds and our hearts and our souls with the things of God. And Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.